My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Brent Preston. Even for non-farmers, it's not hard to imagine that a changing climate has huge implications for agriculture. Higher average temperatures will mean that growing seasons get longer, which sounds like a good thing, but most other changes related to a warming climate present serious problems. Most parts of the country with lots of farming are expected to have more days of extremely high temperature per summer, which can be harmful to both crops and animals. As well, precipitation patterns in many farming areas are expected to change in ways that make rainfall less even, so that both more flooding and more droughts are likely. Overall, there will be greater variability and instability in weather patterns, which will make it harder for farmers to plan. And as we've already begun to see, there will be more extreme weather events of all sorts. For the last 15 years, Brent Preston and his wife Gillian Flies have run an organic vegetable farm near the village of Cremor, Ontario. Over that time, they've seen hotter, drier summers, with rain that is less frequent but more intense when it happens. They've seen warmer winters with less snow cover, which puts their land at more risk of wind erosion and nutrient loss. They've seen changes in disease and pest patterns, and in fact a few years ago they stopped growing tomatoes because certain fungal diseases that used to come near the end of the growing season now come in the middle. What may be less apparent to non-farmers is the extent to which greenhouse gas emissions by the agricultural sector are major contributors to climate change. The dominant approach to agriculture in industrialized countries, including Canada, uses a lot of what today's guest describes as inputs. It's an approach that's highly mechanized, so one form of input is the fossil fuels to run the machinery, but inputs also include things like nitrogen fertilizers and various pesticides and herbicides. Nitrogen fertilizers in particular are a huge source of greenhouse gas emissions, both via the processes through which they're manufactured and also once they're applied. Preston is the president of the Ecological Farmers Association of Ontario. He says that the members of his organization and of a wide range of progressive farmers organizations from across the country have become increasingly concerned with climate change in the last few years. Last year, a number of farmer-led and farmer-supporting organizations came together to form Farmers for Climate Solutions. The new group's focus, along with public education and both educational and mobilizing work directly with farmers, is lobbying federal and provincial governments to develop a sector-wide climate strategy focused on promoting techniques that are low input and that build the soil. Lowering inputs reduces emissions, and many changes in that direction are relatively easy to adopt. Crucially, inputs are a major expense, so reducing inputs will also save farmers money. And farming practices that focus on building soil health can actually lead to carbon dioxide being sequestered from the air into the soil. Preston says they're seeing significant support for their agenda from small and large farmers, organic and conventional farmers, and farmers in all regions of the country. Individual farmers and farmer organizations are doing their best to promote such things, and the occasional government program to do so exists here and there, but Canada lags behind many other countries in terms of coordinated government action. Farmers for Climate Solutions is demanding government action related to education and to subsidies. 
Governments once played a significant role in working with farmers and farmer organizations to spread information about farming techniques. In recent decades, however, that work has largely been done by the huge corporations that manufacture inputs, a fact that may help explain the current dominance of high-input farming. Farmers for Climate Solutions is asking governments to get back to doing this work with an emphasis on the kinds of farming practices that are good for the climate. In terms of subsidy programs, they're not asking for major new expenditures. There already are lots of subsidy programs for farmers, and they want those to be redirected to promote low-input farming. I speak with Preston about the relationship between farming and the climate crisis, and about the work of Farmers for Climate Solutions. My name is Brent Preston. I farm with my wife, Gillian Flies, near the village of Creemore in Ontario. We grow certified organic vegetables, mostly for restaurants. And I'm also the president of the Ecological Farmers Association of Ontario. And that's one of the member organizations of Farmers for Climate Solutions, which is a new national coalition of farmer-led and farmer-supporting organizations that's advocating policies that will help make agriculture part of the solution to climate change. I come from a non-farming background. I grew up in suburban Toronto, and I worked internationally for a number of years on democracy and human rights issues. And it became apparent to me that climate change was really the paramount challenge of humanity at this time, perhaps for any time. And so my wife and I were both looking for a way that we could have a hands-on, tactile impact on climate change. And we came to the conclusion that farming was a way to do that. We founded our farm 15 years ago, and right from the beginning, climate change was really the focus of a lot of what we were doing. So looking for ways that we could farm that was going to reduce emissions, that would pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and into our soils. And then after becoming established and going through all the hard work of starting the farm, we realized that in order to have a bigger impact, we needed to also work on the sort of political side of the equation, not just doing things on our farm, but working to spread climate-friendly agricultural practices to other farms and get the whole sector moving in the right direction. The dominant paradigm right now in agriculture, at least in the developed world, is highly mechanized production using very big machinery, using a lot of agricultural inputs, so fertilizers, chemicals, diesel, and farming with really short rotation. So what we mean by that is growing only one or two crops in monoculture over and over again. And all these practices together are really, really detrimental to the health of the soil and cause a lot of emissions of greenhouse gases, both directly through burning fossil fuels, through the manufacture of fertilizers, and through releasing organic carbon from soil into the atmosphere in the form of carbon dioxide. So agriculture right now is a major contributor to climate change. And that doesn't even talk about land use changes. So converting forest or native grasslands into agricultural land, which releases a huge amount of greenhouse gases. So what we're trying to do is advocate for practices that reverse that flow, that take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and sequester it in our soils, that reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And so we do that through a whole suite of on-farm practices, but all of them are focused on building really, really healthy soil. So we want to have a lot of biodiversity in the soil, have a lot of life there. And when we have really healthy, vibrant living soils, then we solve a lot of those climate problems that are currently associated with agriculture. In the 15 years you've been farming, how has climate change had an impact on what you do? And how do you anticipate it will have an impact on your farm moving forward? 
Agriculture is a major contributor to climate change right now, but we are also really majorly impacted by climate change. On our farm, we have seen in the 15 years that we've been farming hotter, drier summers, less frequent but more intense rainfall events, warmer winters where we have less snow cover on our ground. So we're at risk of wind erosion and nutrient loss in the wintertime because our soil is exposed. We've seen changes in disease and pest patterns. We actually stopped growing tomatoes a few years ago because we were getting fungal diseases that used to come very late in the season and now come in the middle of the season. So we've seen all sorts of climate changes on our farm, and that is mirrored by what farmers are seeing all over the country. So last year on the prairies, we had terrible, terrible wet weather, early snow, millions of acres literally that weren't harvested because of adverse weather events. It's something that's having a very major impact on farmers all across the country. How did Farmers for Climate Solutions get started? Quite a few progressive farming organizations like the Ecological Farmers Association of Ontario and other similar organizations in other parts of the country. What we were seeing is that there's an increasing intensifying focus among our members on climate and agriculture. So farmers that are really, really committed to this idea of building soil health and farming in a way that's going to be beneficial to the wider environment and to the climate specifically. So we had real pressure from our members to not only spread these kind of techniques among our members, but to start looking at ways that we could change the wider agricultural community. And through the course of just meeting with people from some of these other organizations, a bunch of us realized that we were all thinking the same thing, that we needed to start working on policy and encouraging the government to support this kind of agriculture. And we realized very quickly that we would be stronger working together than working separately. The first discussions about this started last fall, and by December, we had decided to form a coalition, and we publicly launched the coalition in February. So it's been really quick, but that sort of reflects the urgency of this issue. We've started by reaching out to farmer organizations. So we've contacted farmer organizations all across the country, national and provincial and regional organizations, and invited them to join the coalition. We have spoken at farmer conferences and at gatherings where farmers get together about this sort of thing and reached out to them. And we've also done a big push on social media to get farmers on board. But that work is still ongoing and it's something that we're just really starting getting rolling on now. So farmer outreach and encouraging more farmers to get involved with our work is something that we're going to be doing over the coming year. And as you've engaged with farmers about these issues, what kinds of conversations have you been getting into? It's actually surprising because when we started farming 15 years ago, there was a great deal of animosity between, you know, what we call conventional farmers and organic or ecological farmers. The organic and ecological farmers were seen as, you know, sort of fringe hippies, not serious about the business of farming. And from the organic and ecological side, there's a lot of vilification of conventional farmers. And I think that has changed really dramatically over the past few years. There's far less animosity. There's far more willingness to reach out from both sides and to understand that we can all learn from each other. And one of the founding principles of this coalition is that we're not going to be dogmatic. We don't have time to be exclusionary or purist all farmers, wherever they may be starting from, let's get everyone moving in the right direction. So the reception that we've had from other farmers when we're talking about this has been overwhelmingly positive. 
There are a lot of farmers who are, like I said before, incredibly committed to farming in a way that's going to benefit the climate. And then there are a lot of farmers who may not really care that much about climate change, but recognize that the practices that we're advocating are going to be good for their bottom line. They're going to help them use less inputs, which are really expensive, help them increase their soil health, which is going to lead to better yields and more resilience in the face of climate change. So overall, the reception has been really great. The fact is that there are really, really powerful, large corporations that have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo because they sell a lot of stuff to farmers. They sell a lot of inputs. And climate-friendly agriculture is low-input agriculture. So there are going to be interests that are fighting against what we're hoping to achieve. But from farmers themselves, I think everyone recognizes that if they can spend less on inputs and have healthier soil, they're going to be better off. What approaches does the group have in mind in terms of pushing for policy changes? We've already started some of that work. So we've had preliminary meetings at the federal level with the Ministry of Agriculture. And what we're planning is to come up with a comprehensive suite of policy proposals and to work with partners in government at the provincial and the federal level to try to find ways to incentivize the practices that we're already implementing on our farms. So we're going to do a sort of traditional government relations kind of process where we meet with elected officials and bureaucrats and talk to them about the policies that we're advocating for. We're also going to be talking to the general public about these sorts of policies and increasing awareness of how agriculture can be part of the solution to climate change. So it's sort of going to be a multi-pronged effort. And then also, as we talked about before, outreach to other farmers. Let's dig in in a bit more detail to the kinds of policies that you're going to be advocating for. We're advocating for low-input agriculture. Most of the greenhouse gas emissions that we see from the agricultural sector are a direct result of agricultural inputs. The biggest one of those and the easiest example to understand is nitrogen fertilizer. Nitrogen fertilizer is made out of natural gas. That's the feedstock for nitrogen fertilizer. It's a hugely energy-intensive process to make nitrogen fertilizer. It's estimated that around 4% of the world's natural gas supply goes to making nitrogen fertilizer. That represents about 2% of all of the energy that humans consume on the planet. So it's a huge, huge amount of energy and a huge amount of emissions to just make this stuff. And then when you apply nitrogen fertilizer to farm fields, some of that nitrogen fertilizer is converted into nitrous oxide, which is an extremely powerful greenhouse gas, hundreds of times more powerful than carbon dioxide. So when we're manufacturing and applying nitrogen fertilizer, we're having a really, really, really big impact on greenhouse gas emissions. It's also detrimental to soil life. Nitrogen fertilizer is a powerful oxidant, so it oxidizes organic matter in the soil, which is the main source of natural fertility in a soil. And that organic matter is oxidized and converted into carbon dioxide. So there's multiple climate impacts of nitrogen fertilizer. It's also expensive. Farmers spend a lot of money for it. So what we're advocating for is government incentives and education to help farmers find alternatives to synthetic nitrogen. And these alternatives are really well known. They're cheap. They're easy. On our farm in 15 years, we have not used a single gram of nitrogen fertilizer. All of our nitrogen fertilizer comes from planting cover crops that have legumes in them. These are plants like peas and soybeans and clover that take atmospheric nitrogen and naturally convert it into nitrogen that plants can use. So that's a really great example of substituting natural sources of nitrogen for synthetic nitrogen, saves farmers money, 
It reduces emissions. It improves soil health. But right now, there's no comprehensive national program to help farmers adopt those practices. We're talking about diesel fuel. So when we're using very, very large machinery and farming over thousands of acres, we're using a lot of diesel and there's direct emissions from that, of course. So we want to see investment and research in battery electric farm vehicles. There's also a lot of emissions from livestock production, methane from manure lagoons and from cattle primarily. There are ways to better integrate animals into cropping systems that reduces those emissions and makes livestock production more efficient. There are emissions from farm buildings and other farm machinery, grain drying, all that sort of thing. So we want to see increased emphasis on on-farm generation of renewable energy. There's lots of farmers who have put in solar panels, who are installing biodigesters to turn animal waste into a usable fuel. So all of these kind of programs that are a little bit scattershot right now, and there's some support for them in some jurisdictions in Canada and not in others, we want to see that become a real national priority. And beyond reducing emissions by reducing inputs, you also mentioned that certain agricultural practices can help sequester carbon dioxide out of the air and into the soil. How does that work? A healthy agricultural soil has an incredible diversity of life in the soil. Bacteria, fungi, nematodes, protozoa, all sorts of different organisms living in the soil. And what they do is that they work in symbiosis with plants. They provide plants with nutrients from the soil. So a fungi, for example, will grow out into the soil and actually grow into the roots of the plant, and they will actively take nutrients out of the soil and give them to the plant. The plant, in return, feeds those microorganisms in the soil with sugars that are created from photosynthesis, which are basically carbon. This is the way that soils are built. It's through this symbiotic relationship between microorganisms in the soil and plants. And that process of taking carbon dioxide of the atmosphere, converting it into sugar through photosynthesis and feeding it to the soil microbes is a really powerful way to pump carbon out of the atmosphere and into the soil. We've seen well-documented examples where farmers are sequestering several tons of carbon per year per acre on their land. And when you multiply that out over the whole area of farmland in Canada, it's the potential for sequestering millions of tons of carbon every year into the soil in a way that also has all sorts of other benefits for fertility, for crop production, for water retention in the soil when we're seeing these intense rainfall events. The methods to create healthy soil and to get that flow going in the right direction are really, really well known and, like I said, have lots of other benefits. So it's something that we're extremely excited about because most sectors, when they're talking about their response to climate change, all they can do is reduce emissions. But in agriculture, we can reduce emissions and we can increase sequestration. What kinds of things do you think governments should be doing to facilitate farmers taking up those techniques? One is education. So in Canada, we used to have what's called a public extension service, where we had government scientists whose job it was to work with farmers and farm organizations to spread information about new techniques, about agronomy and ways of growing crops or raising livestock. That system has been completely dismantled. It doesn't exist anymore in Canada. And that role has been taken over by the input companies. So most farmers now are receiving their agronomy advice from people who are paid by the companies that want to sell them inputs. 
So the first step is for the government to re-enter that space of education and information sharing with farmers so that they can get non-biased advice and advice that will help them reduce their input use. And then there are all sorts of incentive programs that already exist in agriculture in Canada that pay farmers to help them mitigate risk on their farm, to pay them to overcome market turmoil or drops in sales and that sort of thing. And those programs could be retooled to pay farmers to adopt these sort of techniques because the benefits accrue to all Canadians. The benefits are in a healthier environment, cleaner water, less greenhouse gas emissions. So we're not advocating for a huge subsidy process, but to redirect the programs that already exist to encourage farmers to farm in a more sustainable manner. For someone who's using fairly conventional agricultural techniques at the moment, what's the magnitude of the change that would be required of them to take up some of these things that you're recommending? There's a real spectrum. To get to the point where our whole agricultural system is emitting substantially less greenhouse gases is a major undertaking. We don't want to underestimate the challenge that's ahead of us. But to get all farmers starting to move in the right direction, I think, is not so daunting a task. We've seen in other jurisdictions really small things. So a lot of farmers now, conventional farmers, are rotating continuously between corn and soybeans. And that rotation requires a lot of inputs to make it work and is really hard on the soil. And we've seen in some jurisdictions where simply adding one more crop to that rotation, a grain like barley or something like that, every third year can dramatically reduce nitrogen fertilizer demand, can increase soil health, can retain a lot more organic matter in the soil. And it's not a huge change. And then if you add into that system cover cropping, so you're growing some crops in between the other crops simply to feed the soil, not to harvest, that again can have a really, really major impact. So we think that all farmers can start taking steps right away that are actually going to be financially beneficial to them and are going to start having an immediate impact. You said earlier that the division between conventional and ecological farmers isn't as big a thing as it used to be. What about when it comes to adopting these climate-friendly techniques between smaller farms and, like, huge corporate-run farms? Is that a relevant division? It's definitely relevant. Our coalition, Farmers for Climate Solutions, has members of every scale, from literally half an acre up to thousands of acres. There are farmers who are using these techniques and farming in this way at every scale in all parts of the country. But there's a really big and increasing percentage of the farmland in Canada that is farmed by very, very large operations, whether they're corporate or family run. So this whole endeavor of trying to make agriculture part of the solution to climate change is not going to work if we're only dealing with small farms. We have to be able to convince large operators that this is a smart thing to do. And I think that from what I've seen, the uptake from big, huge operations is just as enthusiastic and just as common as from small operations. So I don't see the scale thing as being a huge divide at this point, but we just have to remember that every scale and every kind of operation needs to start adopting these techniques. Tell me more about the opposition you mentioned from the huge corporations that manufacture inputs. These large corporations, the input manufacturers and the large corporations that are the primary purchasers of agricultural products, they have the ear of government. They have huge resources to have paid lobbyists, people who are working day in and day out in Ottawa to influence public policy. A really glaring example is that we launched our coalition on National Agriculture Day in February. 
And on the official ceremony in Ottawa, attended by the minister to mark the day, the speakers were from McDonald's Canada, from Syngenta, one of the largest pesticide manufacturers in the world, from Bayer, which owns Monsanto, from Amazon, which is increasingly getting into the grocery delivery business. There were one or two farmers and more than a dozen representatives of huge multinational corporations speaking at this event. If those are the people you think are appropriate to represent the agriculture sector on this one national day, then we have a problem. No corporation is going to get on board with a program that tries to reduce the amount of stuff that they sell. So the opposition is not overt. It's not, you know, trying to disrupt what we're doing, but it's a very, very long-term, well-thought-out program of lobbying government, influencing public opinion, and trying to convince Canadians generally that the only way to farm is with a whole lot of inputs. One concern that might come from consumers is, will this make food more expensive at the cash register? Not necessarily. I mean, I think that a big problem with our food system is that our food is way too cheap. Canadians spend less of their income on food than any other society in the history of the planet, save maybe the United States. Almost every other country in the world, people spend a much larger portion of their income on food than we do here. And the low cost of food means that we don't value our food. We waste a lot of it. We buy it in the supermarket and we let it rot in our refrigerators. It leads to a whole slew of problems where farmers can't afford to make a decent living. Something like 40% of Canadian farmers work off-farm at other jobs to supplement their income. So we have a huge crisis in agriculture right now in Canada, massive levels of agricultural debt, extremely thin profit margins, an ongoing decades-long exodus from the sector so that we have fewer and fewer farmers. The average age of the Canadian farmer is well over 50 now, and very few young people coming in to take over the farms of people who are retiring. So I think there's a lot of room for Canadians to pay more for food, but the kind of practices that we're advocating are actually going to save farmers money. So the sort of agriculture we're calling for isn't necessarily going to make food more expensive, but I think there are a lot of other factors that should be pushing food in that direction. What would you say to people who are listening who are not themselves farmers and who want to act in support? They, first of all, can go to our website, farmersforclimatesolutions.ca, and add their name to a pledge that they're supporting this initiative and supporting this kind of agriculture. The main thing is to care about how your food is produced. Think about when you're in the grocery store, where did this food come from? Who produced it? How is it produced? And seek out those options that are going to have a smaller impact on the climate. You know, go to the farmer's market if you can, sign up for a CSA for a home delivery share from a farm. If you can get to know the people who are producing your food, that's a huge step. But voting with your dollars, it's never going to solve the whole problem. So people also have to vote with their vote. Ask their elected representatives if they're supporting climate-friendly agriculture. Share social media that we're sending around about the initiatives that we're taking. Generally, if people don't care where their food comes from and how it's produced, then we're going to be fighting an uphill battle. You have been listening to my interview with Brent Preston of Farmers for Climate Solutions. To learn more about the group's work, go to farmersforclimatesolutions.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.